1: As the West grapples with the movement to decolonise museums, public spaces and universities, debates over the British Empire and its legacy continue. To discuss the morality of empire, I'm joined by Professor Nigel Bigger. What is decolonisation?
2: Well, as the uh, Acting Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge said in public late last year, it's not very clear because it doesn't have a very, it doesn't have one definition. It can mean something as innocent as the need to introduce more about the history of immigration in this country and the contribution that non-white peoples have made to this country. And I'm not a school teacher, but if it's true that sixth formers or or secondary school kids haven't been taught much about that, then it seems to me perfectly reasonable that they should be. And there there are some other more innocent meanings of decolonisation, but... The one that I think we should be alarmed at is what I call the the culturally revolutionary decolonizing story, which has it that European uh, colonialism, uh, the colonial histories of European countries, especially Britain, because Britain had the largest empire, is a litany of of slavery, racism, cultural uh, destruction and economic exploitation. Now, the reason that should... Worries is that this is in effect an attack on the record of the West and that there is in the US this 1619 project which has it that the the whole foundations of the US are illegitimate because they are basically racist and the parallel in this country is that the last 300 years of of our history uh, and particularly the history of our uh, our endeavours overseas uh, is a litany of racism etc and if that's true then all the institutions that are presided over that are to some extent delegitimated.
1: And we've seen various practical examples of this bearing out within universities, within public spaces, within museums of, you know, individuals being canceled or plaques being put up to contextualize certain exhibitions or even exhibitions being removed and things like this. So there's the there's the practical side of things, but there's also the sort of psychological part of it which is yes. about our national belief in ourselves.
2: Yeah, yes, Yes. I, 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 that, that's something that I, I, really has motivated me to, to write this book on colonialism and moral reckoning because I, I noticed that, that, that no one cares about Arab empire or uh, no one cares about the, the, quote, vast slave economy, according to one historian that the Comanche ran in the southwest of North America. No one cares about the Zulu empire. It's only white empires. It's only European empires. Why is that? Because this is, I, I think, an assault on the record of the West, uh, and therefore an assault on faith in the West. Because if it's true that all we've done throughout the world is cause misery, then who wants to believe in the West anymore? And and of course, right now, the West is under threat, serious threat from Putin in Ukraine and President Xi rattling his nuclear sabres over Taiwan. So this is the wrong... T- I mean, I mean uh, the issue is not whether the West ha- has things to be ashamed. Of course it does. But the issue is whether... The West's record is sufficiently something to be proud of and to own and to continue that we should have faith in the West.
1: How do you assess this movement to decolonize these public spaces and institutions? Do you think it comes from a specific place or you know, where, where does it come from? Who are these people who want to, to do this stuff?
2: Yes. Well, it comes from two sources. I mean, first of all, it came from South Africa with the Rosemars Fall campaign in 2015-16. And then it came across the Atlantic from America with the Black Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, was that? Okay, so part of the problem is, with regard to to BLM, that something's been imported from the US with assumptions about race that don't apply here. Again, the issue is not whether we don't have racism among us, but the history of race in the United States is very different from the history here. And that point was starkly made in a photograph I saw of a, an English protester, f- female protesting in a Black Lives Matter gathering, uh, I think a year or so ago. And she's holding up a placard saying, disarm the police. Well, that might apply in Memphis, but here our police not, are not normally armed. So th- there's an odd failure to, to, to filter what's coming across the Atlantic and and to realize that what applies there doesn't necessarily apply here. Why is it not filtered? I can only think that it's not filtered for political reasons. It's politically advantageous for certain lobby groups, left-wing groups to forget the difference and, and to big up the problem of racism among us.
1: And this impacted you personally with the publishing of your book in 2020. So can you just tell viewers a little bit about what happened
2: Yes, of course. So taking the story from the beginning, in December 2017, I, for the first time I plunged into a public controversy over a project I was running on, on ethics and empire and an article I published on colonialism where I said that we British have reason for both pride and shame, both shame and pride in our colonial past. So that got me in the papers for about three weeks every day uh, in December seventeen. Uh, The following year, early on, I was approached by a commissioning editor at Bloomsbury Publishing, dinner together, and at the end of that he suggested that I write an intelligent person's guide to colonialism. And I thought about it for a while and eventually agreed to do that. Robin read the manuscript and in early January he wrote me an email saying, this is an important book, he said. He said he was speechless with the rigor of it and he predicted it would sell between 15 and 20,000 copies which would make Bloomsbury a fair penny. So I was was delighted and the book went into uh, the copy editing process and they even designed a cover and then in March of 2021 an email came from the senior management of Bloomsbury announcing that they were going to postpone publication indefinitely because, quote, uh, public feeling is unfavorable. I, I was told that this actually meant they wanted to cancel the contract, but I wasn't willing to let them go straight away because I had no other publisher. I, I didn't expect them to give me an honest response, but I thought I gave them a chance. So I, I asked them in one email, innocently, so which public feeling are you referring to? What, because there are several public feelings. Uh, and... Uh, In response, they wouldn't name it. So I said, Well, under what conditions, how could conditions change so that you would find it favorable to publish? And again, they wouldn't give me an honest answer. And in that last email, they simply said, Well, we don't want to keep you waiting, so we want to end the contract. And knowing that I couldn't hold them to it, I had no choice. I had no publisher. My wife tells me, being a man, my emotions are normally several days behind me, um, but she tells me I was devastated. Uh, I I was devastated, of course, I was devastated personally at the prospect that what I thought was an important book and what my editor told me was an important book would not get published. But what alarmed me most of all was the thought that in Britain now um, the situation is that publishers will not publish important, well reasoned books that challenge certain prevailing orthodoxies that according to to my view are considerably fraudulent they're not true and museums and universities and schools are making decisions based on a false reading of the history of this country Uh, and the prospect that that couldn't be said in public anymore because publishers were too scared to do it Uh, fill me with depression but happily uh, not all publishers were as Cowardly as Bloomsbury, and uh, Harper Collins came to my rescue, and William Collins will publish the book on Thursday.
1: So a good end in a way to to that story, and uh, thank goodness, absolutely. And let's talk about the book then. So this is a, a moral examination of the British Empire. I'm interested as well where this idea that the British Empire was this evil thing kind of came from. Obviously, we, you go back a long time in history. Do you think that? The Americans aided this, this view of, of our empire. In, in the past as well, when you look at presidents, you know, they were very anti-British colonialism yes. you know, during the war and, and, and immediately after the war. How do you view that sort of American view of our empire? How has that changed things?
2: Yes, I, I, I'm sure that that has had an influence. And of course, whatever happens in America does come over here. And right now, of course, the New York Times has become famous for being... Um, relentlessly anti-British and the left in America and this includes of course a lot of American academics has uh, become fiercely critical of America's own early colonial history and the 1619 project I understand uh, believes that America was founded on racism and therefore that the fundaments of the country are illegitimate morally illegitimate so if they think that about their colonial history then given given the origins of America as a violent reaction against British empire in the late seventeen hundreds then you can understand why they have a dim view of british colonialism but of course most Americans know nothing about british colonialism um, and i I've read books where they they make assumptions of just just plain wrong
1: and Americans, as i say throughout since their inception or conception in um 1776, you know, they've been a lot of Americans have been very anti imperialist, particularly America. as I said, American presidents. Yes. And you could also look to Russians, you know, Lenin was, was someone who, who was very anti imperialist. And so this, this anti colonization yep. movement has been a long time coming, you know. I don't think it's necessarily a recent thing.
2: No, 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 no. Uh, and I mean, there's always been a, since around 1900, there's always been a strong left wing. Critique of empire in this country. I mean, my my ethics and empire project has turned up one interesting observation, which is that for most of history, empire as such was a completely unremarkable phenomenon. Uh, you can't find critics of empire in ancient China or m- the medieval Muslim world, that they criticise bad emperors, but not not the fact of empire. The critique of empire seems to be quite a, a late post-Christian European phenomenon. So, so you're right, early 1900s that. Lenin, for example, becomes anti-imperial, although Marx himself wasn't insofar as he regarded the colonial phase as a necessary phase in, in economic development. If you add the kind of left-wing Marxist critique to a natural American skepticism or criticism of empire, then that, that does explain it. Although, as I pointed out in my book, America's relationship with empire is, is ambiguous because Uh, One of the reasons the American colonists wanted rid of the British Empire was that the British Empire was stationing redcoats along the Appalachians to stop colonists invading Indian lands. At that point, the British Empire was defending natives against colonists, ironically.
1: And for much of the people who were imperialists in Britain saw, for example, the scramble for Africa as their own way to expand westwards, as America had done. And, you know, create their own sort of they need their own resources and land to compete with america that was an interesting kind of comparison there but yes let's talk about the main accusation against uh, empire this is and this is a contem- more contemporary one and that is race so yeah. is, everyone's obsessed with racism yeah. in 2023 is britain first of all is britain a racist country systemically racist country as the accusation goes and is this linked in any way to our colonial past
2: right so to your first question first of all i'm not an expert on race in britain but I can read, I can also see. So let, let's start with what I can see. I observe that in the, the last government of Boris Johnson, the last conservative <laughs> government of Boris Johnson, almost every holder of major offices of state did not have a pink skin. Rishi Sunak, Kwasi Kwarteng, Sajid Javid, Nadim Zahawi, Kimi Bednok. I can go on. Right, so somehow in the early 2020s, a conservative government put into, into populated itself with people from whose ethnic background was Indian, or Iraqi, or Nigerian, or Ghanaian, whatever. And no one, there was no discussion of this in the newspapers at all. It was entirely natural, which is exactly as it should be. So prima facie, at first glance, is this a white supremacist country where we believe that only whites can stay on top? Is this so systemically racist that people with non-white skins can't rise to the top? Well, evidently not. Does this mean there's no racism amongst us? Does it mean mean that in some institutions there isn't institutional racism? No, it doesn't mean that. But the the government's own report on um, race and ethnic diversity, uh, published in early 21, chaired by Tony Sewell, called the Sewell Report, and and of the commissioners, I think there were 10, all but one of them had a non-white skin, They concluded that, no, Britain is not systemically racist as a whole, uh, and the reason for different outcomes between ethnic groups, the reasons are various. Uh, And they also noted that that, um, usually at the bottom of the social pile are not black people or off-white people, but poor whites. So uh, the the assumption, uh, it, it is often an assumption. It's not argued, and often it's made by appeal to the lived experience of black individuals to its responses. Well, different black individuals have different experiences. The assumption that Britain is systemically racist I think is highly, highly dubious. Now, uh, what's that got to do with the colonial past? Because the story goes, uh, and this is at the heart of the decolonizing narrative and its rationale, the story goes, that we are systemically racist and that our systemic racism uh, derives from a colonial history the epitome of that colonial history was slavery, which was obviously based on a a racist view of Africans as people who could be treated as subhuman or certainly inferior humans. So what's wrong with that? Basically what's wrong with it is that there's no direct, unbroken, causal connection between slavery in the 18th century and the present. Why isn't there an unbroken, causal connection? Well, for... A number of reasons but the main one is in 1807 this country was among a handful of european countries who were the first countries in the history of the world to abolish the slave trade this was while africans were do- doing it while arabs were doing it uh, the comanche in southwest north america had done it in the 1700s um, i was in i was in uh, north carolina earlier in january went to the uh, museum of history of north carolina and discovered that on the eve of uh, the american civil war in 1860 there were 30,000 freed slaves in north carolina some of them held slaves of their own right so everyone was doing it but in the early 1800s this country decided to abolish the slave trade and 30 years later abolished slavery throughout the empire and for the following 120 years until the end of the empire was committed to suppressing slavery and the uh, trade in slaves all over the world on the basis of a mainly Christian, somewhat enlightenment view that all human beings are equal, regardless of race, in the sight of God. So on the basis of a human, a vision of human equality. So that, that's the that's main huge fly in the ointment of the decolonizing story, that, that between us and slavery, is a century and a half of committed anti-slavery, and just to add to that, I mean the 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 movement to abolish slavery in this country was I mean it it was it was involved uh, MPs in the early 1800s of course it involved people in the House of Lords of course but it also involved for the first time in British politics I think a, a mass movement uh, something like a third. A third of the population signed petitions uh, in favor of abolition in the late 1700s, early 1800s. So there's that. Then you have people like Frederick Douglass, the famous black abolitionist, arriving here in 1845. And he declares, I find here an almost perfect absence of the kind of racism that I and fellow Negroes experience in, in the States. And then you have, scrolling forward 100 years, in 1943 when the U.S. Army landed here, and wanted the British to accept uh, segregation so so black troops couldn't meet with whites in pubs or whatever, there was widespread popular unrest at that, and the secretary of the colonies um, had to protest in the cabinet against acceding to uh, American demands. So, no, I don't think we are systemically racist now, and whatever racism lingers among us cannot be laid at at the feet of the British Empire or British colonialism because more recently and for a long time, we have been committed to racial equality.
1: This idea of slavery is fascinating because, as you mentioned, the British Empire wasn't the only empire to be involved with slavery and the slave trade. In fact, most empires were. I mean, am I right in saying that, that, you know, if you look at any other empire throughout history, there's, they're involved in slavery?
2: But slavery has been around from ancient times. I mean, you'll find it among the... Uh, Empires of the Middle East, the Assyrians and Babylonians, etc., Babylonians, etc. then you've got you know, it, the Romans did it, the Greeks did it, the Carthaginians did it. The Arabs did it. Everyone was doing it. And as I say, I mean before Europeans, and particularly the Portuguese, started trading slaves across the Atlantic, Arabs had been trading Africans, and before that, Africans had have been, have been, have been selling other Africans to the Romans. So it was a universal institution uh, from ancient times. It, it wasn't, yeah, there, there were varieties of slavery. Uh, and if you were a, a Muslim slave in the Ottoman period, sometimes you could, you could rise to become prime minister. And you will find even in the West Indies or, or in the American South, I mean, Slav, some slave owners were, were more humane than others. Now, the, the basic problem with slavery, however, is that it puts an individual at the mercy at the whim of his or her master because the the paradigm of evil slavery is is that slave has no rights whatsoever so I'm I'm not condoning it (laughs) let's be clear but it it was universal Uh, and I think when when you judge individuals like Edward Colston or Francis Drake for their involvement in slavery you do need to take account of the fact that everyone was involved in it and it wasn't until I think about a hundred years after Colston was dead and Century and a half, or two centuries after Drake died, that the the idea that enslaving people is in itself morally unacceptable, morally abhorrent, began to gain traction in Europe, and particularly in Britain. So we're talking seventeen seventies onwards.
1: So you're making moral judgments about the past, which is always a tricky business. And so maybe you can discuss how you've done that and how you've kind of got around those issues, because as you say, these are the Enlightenment changes people's opinions christianity changes people's opinions and you know that example of drake is interesting because the bbc recently described drake as the famous slave trader and that you, you know you can see that's how far the discourse has gone and this is why perhaps your book is so important to have these yeah. discussions so just how, how do you get around this issue of of judging people hundreds of years ago on sort of on their moral or morality of, of today's you know after using today's values
2: the first thing you have to do is you really have to take on board the fact the past was very, very different. For most people, life was dreadful from our, our perspective. Life was very short and could be very brutal. And life was very insecure. So th- there was lots of violence. Um, and we, we, we enjoy in... No, we, we, we are, of course, full of complaint about our current woes. But we in Britain, even now, most of us, the vast majority of us, enjoy... Degrees of, of wealth and health and security in public that are unprecedented in our own history and unprecedented in the history of, of the world. And there are plenty of peoples right now who do not enjoy what we enjoy. So we have to get ourselves out of the present to, to realize just how insecure life was in the past. And that when life is insecure, there's more violence because you need, you need to use violence and you need to deter people from attacking you a lot. Uh, And so one has to be a bit forgiving. Yes, I regard uh, slavery as abhorrent, but but I recognise that even in the past, slavery wasn't always dire. It depends what kind of slavery we're talking about. And even in the past, people could distinguish between inhumane, cruel forms of slavery and more humane forms. So they weren't entirely morally insensitive. So, So there's that. And then I think... What else in terms of moral judgments of the past? I mean, I do think we, we, we can't help but make moral judgments of the past and we can recognize unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary cruelty. And even at the time, people recognize unnecessary cruelty. But as I say, in addition to recognizing the difference of the past, there's also the fact that, that what is moral does vary according to circumstance. So with regard to violence... The rule is, unless you're a complete pacifist, which I'm not, uh, don't use more violence than you really have to. So in, in, our, in, in a highly well-organized society like our own, and where the state is usually strong, uh, the state can acquire of, of police that violence is used only under very, very uh, strict circumstances. Put yourself uh, under a state which is on the verge of collapse. Put yourself actually in, in a battlefield during, during a war the moral constraints of use of violence are relaxed. And the fact of the matter is that in the past, life was generally much more insecure, the threats to life were much higher, and states were much weaker. Therefore, the, the amount of violence that is necessary increases. So I think it's not just recognising the difference between us and the past. More generally, it's recognising that, the, that what's, what's required morally is relative to circumstances. It, does, it doesn't mean that all principles run full of, uh, are chucked out the window, but it doesn't mean that they're relative.
1: Let's talk about motivations behind the British Empire. Now, these are varied, and I'm sure change from within in individuals and within different periods of the empire. You know, the empire was around for a long time, so there isn't any going to be one sort of answer to this question. But what is what was the central motivation, do you think, behind the empire?
2: As it ha- happens, you asked me that question, after a weekend when there was a review published in the Times of my book, uh, which uh, made a caricature out of what i have written and, and uh, told readers that I, I, I uh, uh, paint a picture of the British Empire as a scheme for moral improvement.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Which is just silly. And instead, this reviewer says, no, no, the empire was all about profit. Which is also silly. (laughs) Because, yes, the empire was about trade from the beginning and uh, merchants want to make a profit and financiers want to invest and the shareholders want to return nothing wrong with that but it was also about other things too it was about mass migration of people from these islands from the British Isles Scots and Irish and English people fleeing famine in this country or just wanting a, a better life uh, going to uh, uh, um, North America was their preferred destination, much later Australia. Not many were keen in Africa because of, of disease. Uh, and so people pitching up on the shores of North America uh, were wanting a better life.
1: So this is the Mayflower, this is Mayflower. P- the Puritan, And
2: also fleeing religious persecution. So I, I like to say, and I think it's not unfair to say, that the motives for people, for mass migration of people to colonies, was not dissimilar to the motives that propel people across the English Channel right now. So there was trade and there was people seeking a better life. There was also certainly geo, geopolitical considerations. So Britain wanting to gain or keep military advantage or, or commercial advantage over international rivals. Again, as such, nothing wrong with that. But there were also ideals come in. So one of the reasons why we ended up in Palestine after the First World War was that Arthur Balfour, then I think Foreign Secretary, was persuaded that the Jews had an ancient claim to return to their original homeland in Palestine. And then you have humanitarian motives, abolition of slavery, suppression of slavery from Brazil across Africa to Malaysia. And the liberal ideal that eventually peoples should rule themselves was involved earlier on than you would have thought. And One of the things about the British Empire was that it learned from its mistakes. One mistake was to try to hold on to the American colonies. We failed. So what did we learn? We learnt in 1867 to begin to give Canada its own autonomy. And by 1930, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand were virtually autonomous. So there was a recognition that the empire could not remain a kind of tightly, a, a body of colonial states tightly controlled from London. It would recognise it would have to become a looser and more voluntary organisation, which eventually it became in the British Commonwealth. But even in, in the 1820s, you'll find all three governors of the main trading cities in India Madras, Calcutta, and Bombay, all as happened governed by Scotsmen. Every one of them says that we can't stay here forever, all we can do is hope to help Indians build a, a coherent sufficiently well-governed uh, political system, then we go uh, go with grace and hopefully go with their affection.
1: There were, of course, idealists within w- the British Empire, colonists who wanted to go out and spread British values, liberalism, or, or perhaps that was a front. That's what some people say. This, there were, of course, you know, some who wanted to expand the what they called the pink places on the map and that sort of thing. So do you think that we should take these people at face value when, when they say they want to spread democracy and
2: Christianity and... So, lest I forget, the answer is yes and no. I'll start with the yes bit. Yes, often we should. Why not? We are often driven by moral and political ideals. Woke critics of empire are certainly driven by them. Why is it so strange that we should think that people in the 19th century were driven by them? And ironically, the liberal imperialists of the 19th century... Those who wanted to use the power of empire to improve the welfare of native peoples were the progressors of their day. And
1: Can you give us some examples of people?
2: Yes. Certainly, famously, David Livingstone, a missionary in East Africa and Southeast Africa, he was committed to, and he found, he had first-hand experience of watching the slave trade, found it abhorrent. He worked out, he figured out that you can't abolish the slave trade unless you provide other things to trade with, which is why he came up with a scheme which was never realised, I think, for trying to grow cotton in South East Africa to provide something else to trade other than human beings, and also to allow British importers of cotton to cut their dependence on the American South. So he'd be one obvious and famous Christian humanitarian, and his humanitarianism was utterly sincere. Can I call others to mind? You'll find others... So General
1: Gordon, would he be one? He went and tried to stop the slave trade in Sudan?
2: Yes, he would be. He was a slightly odd, uh, religiously intense figure, but the reason he ended up besieging Khartoum and eventually killed was he was there to suppress slave trade among the Sudanese. You'll find other characters in India who suppress... They, They don't abolish the practice of female infanticide. This particular fellow whose name I've forgotten... Reckon that if you try to abolish it, you provoke a reaction which is counterproductive. But over a period of decades, he persuaded this particular Indian people to stop killing their female infants. Then, in the eighteen twenty nine thirty, the East India Company does abolish the, pra- the practice of sati, whereby Indian widows would be required to burn themselves alive on the funeral pyres of their deceased husbands. And that, by the way, tells against the reviewer on Saturday, who was saying that. No, the empire was all about profit-making, and the East India Company was about making profit, and they, they, they didn't want Christian missionaries to come to India because it, they would create unrest among the people, which is true up until the 1830s. But in 1829, 1830, the East India Company did abolish Sati, at the risk of popular unrest, which would have been economically disruptive. And they didn't do it to make a profit.
1: This review in the Times, he, says of, he, so he, he quotes some of the people, David Livingston among them, that you talk about in your book. And he says, collectively, little more, these people are little more than a, a, sh- a sideshow in the story of empire. And you know, he says that it was all about profits. So, yes. so are you not being selective on sort of tiny individuals who didn't make a huge impact compared to the vast nature of empire?
2: Yeah, we can always, we can always argue about just how much weight to put on these things. But the uh, David Livingstone's campaign against the slave trade in Africa was only one. I mean, the slave trade in Africa was abolished gradually. In Zanzibar, there was, as you mentioned, Charles Gordon in the Sudan. At one point, it's reckoned, and there was also raffles in, in Malaysia, and at one point, it was reckoned that 13% of the total manpower of the Royal Navy was devoted to stopping slave trade in between West Africa and and Brazil. And that was just the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, no, the, the campaign against slavery in the slave trade in the British Empire was not marginal. It was sustained and it was costly. And many peoples around the world have the British to thank for their emancipation. And it wasn't just about it wasn't just about slavery, as I said, it was also female ephandeside, sati in the 1930s campaigns against female genital mutilation in East Africa. So no, I don't accept this. that that, that this was all a kind of humanitarian froth on a basically money-grubbing capitalist enterprise. But again, the reviewer seemed to imply that there's something intrinsically wrong with making a profit. I don't think there is. There's no doubt that the profit-making was a large motive, and no doubt some people were very greedy, and no doubt... Then as now, some profit makers were unscrupulous. So take Cecil Rhodes. He was a capitalist. He liked making m- money. He was, he was unscrupulous. Like most entrepreneurs, he likes to cut corners and he's impatient with constraints. And if I were going to put up a poster boy to Empire, it wouldn't be him. However, and the reviewer on Saturday complained that I described him as an altruist. That's too simple. But there is a sense in which he was, in that he made lots of money. but He didn't want, he didn't want money in order to build himself multiple palaces and in order to to feather his own nest like for example president jacob zuma was doing in south africa until recently he didn't do that he lived quite frugally did roads he invested his money and he wasn't he was powered by perhaps a rather naive vision of the british empire as a as a force for good as a force for modernization which would improve the welfare of peoples and so he used his money to develop infrastructure in south africa and famously funded his world famous scholarship scheme so he didn't spend whatever you think about his motives and they were mixed and his conduct was certainly morally ambiguous he wasn't a greedy man
1: oddly we've done a whole podcast on him and people should go and check that out and we talk all about his his life and his motivations and there's another chap who i'm fascinated in which the reviewer in the times quotes from so this is lord salisbury this is the british prime minister In the late 19th century, this is at Pax Britannica, the height of the British Empire. And the reviewer quotes from Lord Salisbury saying, we seek no goldfields. And then he compares Lord Salisbury to Richard Nixon in his sort of duplicity during the Watergate scandal and Bill Clinton when he denied those allegations against him of sexual impropriety in the White House. So this was really interesting to me because Lord Salisbury was a, a deeply moral man a deeply Christian man, probably one of the most moral prime ministers Britain's ever had. A man who, who thinks very deeply about things, who certainly didn't purposefully, I don't think. I don't from what I've read about Lord Salisbury, he seemed like a very straightforward guy. And to compare him to Nixon and to Clinton is applying modern standards to someone who I suspect the reviewer doesn't know too much about. And I think it's interesting that Perhaps in today, when Christianity is on the decline in the West, and in Britain in particular, and questions of morality are not debated too often in public life, that perhaps when we judge these Victorian figures, we are missing something, or we're not, we perhaps don't quite have that same understanding of morality and Christianity and their motivations as we could have.
2: Yes, I, I found Salisbury's so review just generally cynical. I, I don't know much about Salisbury. You clearly know more about him than I do, the person I know about in South Africa was Alfred Milner, Lord Milner, uh, who was High Commissioner in Africa. And he also was a very moral man. He was actually a subscriber to to a certain kind of socialism. And he, he funded he supported work in the East End of London among, among the poor. So, so I, I do think many Victorians, and particularly those in charge of empire, were moral idealists. They'd often been inspired by Benjamin Jowett here in Oxford in the late 1800s, who really believed that the British Empire was a force for good, and the British administration was more efficient, had more integrity, and would bring the peoples of the world greater prosperity. They certainly did. So I think a general cynicism toward those people is unwarranted, and especially when (laughs) there seems to be plenty of moral idealism around us now. Why wouldn't there be some then?
1: And of course, there were racists in the empire. People were racist. British people were racist against Africans and others. And I'm just curious to know what your perspective on, on that is. And I want to talk about Darwin, not the man himself because, and his theories, because I think they've been slightly misinterpreted at the time, but he was a scientific man who, who came up with his brilliant theories of evolution. And the way that these were interpreted by contemporaries certainly impacted their views on race. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of race and how the scientific view of race and yeah. social Darwinism?
2: Yeah. So first of all, racism is a universal human phenomenon. We all like to plug ourselves into a group and feel good about the group, and one way in which you feel good about the group is by disparaging others. B, B, even if if we're talking about football clubs, we all do that, and racial prejudice is universal. In 1940, the Irish novelist Gerald Hanley was in British uniform in Somaliland commanding uh, black troops there, and he reports that he could not persuade, he could not persuade his Somali troops to accept orders from a black Bantu NCO because the Somalis regarded Bantu as natural slaves so first of all it's not just a European or white or British phenomenon racism secondly yes there was what I feel to be disgusting racism in British colonies particularly settlers in Africa planters in India would be grotesquely contemptuous and rude to native peoples rightly causing resentment Okay, but that's not all. There was there was also fascination on the part of Britons for native cultures, particularly in India, where Britons were responsible for translating ancient texts, from rescuing Sanskrit from oblivion, for preserving monuments. And if you read about the Indian civil service or the or the political service in the Sudan, you will hear the relationship between or the attitude of British colonial officers toward the peoples they ruled in terms of love. I've come across that several times. Now it may have been patronizing, but it was love, not racism. So there's that. But to get to your main point. Yes, in the late in the mid to late nineteenth century there arose what's called scientific or biological racism. This is the view and you're right to say Darwin himself wasn't responsible for this, but as it were disciples of Darwin, were the view that certain races are naturally, biologically, genetically inferior to others now and always. So th- this would be, produces a kind of white supremacist racism, whites are naturally destined always to, to, to non-white peoples. And that, that did develop, but it didn't eclipse the, the earlier Christian view on which the abolition of slavery was based, namely that all human beings are equal under God, regardless of race, which is not to say that human cultures may not differ in terms of their level of development. So it is perfectly capable for someone like Rhodes to land in South Africa in 1870 and feel himself to be part of a culture that was manifestly superior to Bantu African culture in terms of science and technology and medicine and power and even political institutions and in some cases morality because british culture british civilization was in those respects nevertheless Rhodes can be found in the 1890s saying in parliament in the cape parliament that when all said and done africans and europeans africans are no, dif- no different from ourselves basically but there is, but he, he would refer to Africans as children, patronising. He also referred to the Fellows of Royal College as children in terms of finance. But basically, biologically, naturally, no, Africans and other native peoples are our equals. But there's a really important distinction between different kinds of racial prejudice.
1: Let's talk about the Second World War. And I don't know how much you talk about this in your book, but it's an interesting, obviously, the outcome of the Second World War is for the British Empire is very negative. It accelerates the, the speed of decolonization in a very in the practical sense, not in the new terminology. Yes, yes. People so I just read a biography of Lord Halifax and he was the Viceroy in India and he was later foreign secretary and someone greatly involved in this move movement to appease Hitler. And part of the motivations behind that was to protect the British Empire. They saw another war as being a serious danger to the already very fragile British Empire. And he'd seen in India how fragile it was. He was coming up against Gandhi and that mo- the movement there already. The outcome of the Second World War, as I say, was mass decolonisation across the colonies. How do you put the Second World War in place of, in your sort of moral balance sheet? Because although politicians like Churchill were determined to save the empire, and wasn't, they weren't doing this to sacrifice the empire to save the world, as it were. That, was, that certainly wasn't his motivation in his mind. But that was the outcome.
2: Yes, actually, Halifax, of course, was one who wanted us to negotiate with Hitler in 1940. I forget exactly what Halifax's motivations were, but the evidence is, I think, that Hitler would have let us keep the empire. So it could be argued the better way to save the empire would have been to appease Hitler. Whereas in May 1940 with the fall of France, And our troops just kicked out of Norway when Churchill persuaded Britain, persuaded Parliament to carry on the war against Hitler. And for the next 12 months, the British Empire was the only military power in the field against Nazi Germany, with the exception of Greece. So it was very lonely very risky very precarious victory was not assured and yet churchill did it so churchill in a sense didn't persuade britain to carry on fighting nazi germany to save the empire he put the empire at risk why because to his credit he recognized that he recognized the unscrupulous murderous, racist heart of Nazism and recognized that it was a threat to what I think, even though he wasn't particularly religious, he called Christian civilization, which we might call liberal, humane civilization. So he took the empire to war then for the sake of what we would regard as liberal, progressive humanity and that's partly i mean i caught in my book an african chief who volunteered his people to serve in the british army many of them in southeast asia and the african chief i think it thinks in ghana says we took a look at hitler we looked at what he thought of african peoples and we could see who was fighting for us it wasn't hitler it was the british that's why we fought with them and in india there were over two million volunteers who fought with the British, and the British component of forces in Southeast Asia was in the tens of thousands, whereas the Indians gave two million. No, most Indians wanted independence at that point, but they recognised that the kind of imperialism that Japan represented was far more brutal and unscrupulous and probably not very respecting of Indians. They fought with the British as part of the empire, so that they could come to rule what the British had built. But they wanted to keep what the British had built.
1: One final question, and this goes to the very heart of your book. Okay, so you're not an historian. You are an ethicist. I think you'd admit that. Yep. In an age obsessed with facts and fact-checkers and experts, (laughs) how do you find find debating these issues? Because you are focusing on issues of morality and not facts.
2: And to date, and I'm sure it will continue, one of the main ways in which those who don't like my views on empire seek to discredit me is by saying, oh, he's not an historian, to which my response, if I'm being particularly combative, is to say, no, I'm not a professional historian, but first of all, generally speaking, I prefer to judge what someone says or writes on its merits, and not to pull rank, but if we are pulling rank, then what I've done is to make a moral assessment of British Empire. And I don't know of any historian who has my qualifications in ethics, so on that in in that respect, I'm the only quali- qualified person in the room. But then, although I am equipped to to think about moral concepts and to think about how to make moral judgments about complex things, and I've done a lot of work on judging wars, for example. Morally, um, yes, I have to get, as it were, the fact right. Otherwise, my judgments are going to be are going to go astray. So I've done a vast amount of reading. You will find that when treating some controversial issue, I don't rely on one historical account. I read several, and the reader can see exactly why I make sense of certain facts in the way I do. And over a third of the book is composed of footnotes and. By the way, there's a lot of good stuff in the footnotes. And I had to do that. And I spare the reader a lot of detail in the text. So if you don't want the detail, you can ignore it. But I had to do that because these things are so controversial. And because I'm not an historian, I need to show I've done my homework. So I think I've got the facts mostly straight. Although the territory is vast and runs from 1600 to 1960 and from... British Columbia to New Zealand. So no doubt there are some facts I've missed. No doubt there are factual corrections to be made. And when those are pointed out to me and when I've agreed with them, I will make them. But the third thing I did was to show the manuscript of my text to a number of historians. And I've asked their advice on various points, which is incorporated into the book. But then I asked, I think, 10 historians if they would read, look at the manuscript and write pre-publication commendations and the front of the book has their commendations and I did that precisely to wrong foot those to say well oh, Bigger's not an historian we can't take him seriously because the likes of Vernon Bogdan or Robert Toombs, Neil Ferguson, Tanker Roy who's a specialist in the history of colonial economics, Andrew Roberts, Ruth Dudley Edwards, author Matthew Paris who's a journalist not a, an historian but I've got what I think to be very strong recommendations from professional historians, many of whom use the words fair and balanced. Some use the word rigorous. So if someone complains that Big's is not an historian, so we shouldn't pay attention to him. <laughs> Those are the things I would say.
1: Thank you very much, Nigel, for joining us.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy